We'll hear argument first this morning in number 9757, Ronald Chisholm v. Charles Romer, consolidated with 901032, United States against Charles Romer. General Starr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case brings before the Court an important issue of the coverage of the Voting Rights Act. The specific question is whether the results test of Section 2 of that Act applies to the election of judges. In its in-bank opinion in the LULAC case, which will be argued next, the Fifth Circuit held that judges are not covered by the results test. The Court's reasoning was that Section 2B of that statute, added in 1982, by its terms applies to the election of representatives. And in the Court's view, the elected judges are not representatives. As a result of the opinion in LULAC, the Fifth Circuit panel in this case, which involves a challenge to the at-large election of two justices of the Louisiana Supreme Court, ordered this lawsuit dismissed. In our view, the Fifth Circuit, with all respect, is wrong. It is wrong in light of the text of the Voting Rights Act, including its comprehensive definition of vote and voting set forth in Section 14C1. In light of the structure of the statute, including Section 5, the preclearance provision, which all admit covers the election of judges, and in light of the elaborate history of the Voting Rights Act at the time of its original passage and the 1982 amendments. The Fifth Circuit also, we believe, erred on what it viewed as a basic point. That is, not only are judges covered by the terms of the statute, when they are elected, they are candidates for public office, and that's what the Voting Rights Act covers. But it's also wrong as to the meaning of the term representatives. We think that for two reasons. The first is that Congress provided no definition of the term representatives. There is no indication that Congress was using this as a term of art. And judges who are elected are quite literally representatives within the dictionary meaning of that term. And, as Judge Higginbotham pointed out in his concurring opinion in Lurline, judges who have been chosen by the people and are directly accountable to the people are in a very real and practical sense representatives. And we see that in the Louisiana system. That is, the candidates for a seat on the Louisiana Supreme Court are involved fully in the political process, in the very basic sense of getting themselves elected to public office. And that's what the Voting Rights Act is all about. It's about voting and it's about elections. And whatever the very important, the lofty function, the solemn responsibility of that justice, once the justice is in office, the plain fact remains that to get into office in Louisiana, the justice had to get himself elected. General Starr, um, there's some authority for the proposition that there's no one vote, one person requirement in, in election for judges. How uh, do you think a vote dilution claim is made out in the absence of that, if applied to judges? 
the line of authority, and it is clear that judges are not covered by the one-person, one-vote principle, is inapplicable here. And I think the Court can see that both in terms of the function of that body of law and what that body of law was designed to get at, and it can see it most clearly in this Court's decision in White against Register. Because there, in analyzing the Texas districting scheme, the Court rejected a one-person, one-vote challenge, but at the same time credited and upheld an attack to the minority dilution effect in the two counties, in Dallas County and Bear County. The two are entirely distinct lines of authority seeking to get at different things. But, but if the judges are representatives in the way that you've described, uh, then ought we to rethink that line of authority and indicate that one person, one vote does apply to all representatives. It, is, it seems to me that uh, to the extent you say uh, judges are representatives, that it may undercut the rationale of the line of authority which suggests that one person, one vote is inapplicable. I respectfully disagree, and we certainly are not urging that, and I disagree for, for, for this reason. Think of a large state with perhaps quite small, predominantly rural counties. The law is, and I think the law is sound in this respect, that a state, as a matter of policy, can make a determination that each county should have a judge, even if the numbers don't justify that. So, too, it may very well be that even though the numbers may not justify, in terms of population, the large number of judges in an urban district as opposed to a suburban district that perhaps is less litigious, nonetheless, states can determine to order their own structures in ways that are responsive to the needs of the people. That strikes us as very sensible, and this court itself, in White Against Register, said those same kinds of state interests and state policies permit greater deviations in state legislative redistricting than is the case in congressional districting, which, which requires almost mathematical exactitude. Well, what is the test, then, in a vote dilution claim uh, if it applies to judges? The test in a vote dilution claim is whether there is, in fact, under the totality of the circumstances, as set forth in Section 2B, less of an opportunity for minority persons to participate fully in the political process and to elect candidates of their choice. It is what Congress did... Less, less than what, General Starr? You said there can be less than other, people's ha than other people have. You say that people in one county can have much greater opportunity to elect a judge than people in another county. Less than what? It seems to me you need a standard for dilution. Oh, you don't know what watered beer is unless you know what beer is, right? Less you need a standard of watering. What is the standard for watering the election of judges? The standard is less than others, less than non-minority persons. But, but you said it's okay to have less of a chance than others in other counties, right? No, in terms of equal protection principles as embodied in one person, one vote. The point I'm trying to make, Justice Scalia, is the line of authority with respect to vote dilution is exactly different. It is distinct. We're talking about a statute passed by Congress. We're not talking about a constitutional standard under the Equal Protection Clause. Could, could you give me, you know, just, just what the baseline is? In, in those elections that are governed by one person, one vote, we know what the baseline is. People right. are supposed to have, no matter what their race, 
the same, the same say. Now, you say that is not the standard here. What is the standard? How do I know, then, when a person of a, of a certain race has gotten less than what he's entitled to? I would commend to the Court the vast body of law that the, that the Senate report in 1982 looked to. It said, we have seen the test fashioned by this Court in White v. Register faithfully applied in no fewer than 23 cases. And those cases all involve a totality of the circumstances analysis, which, as this Court put it in White v. Register, is an intensely local appraisal to determine whether minorities enjoy full access. Did they also involve uh, candidates who were subject to the one-person, one-vote requirement? Some did, and some rejected one-person, one-vote challenges, while at the same time vindicating a vote dilution challenge brought by minorities. Did they involve officers that were not subject to the one-person, one-vote requirement? I don't think any of those did, but some may. I'm not going to say authoritatively that, 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 that none did. A vast array of offices were involved. Some of them were intensely local. I do believe my best recollection is one person, one vote did apply. Well, don't, don't make me go back and read all those cases. Just tell me the test. What is, what the, is the, the standard? Oh, what is the baseline? The baseline is set forth in the statute, and that baseline is the totality of the circumstances. What does that mean? I, I don't understand. That means it depends. It means it depends, right? Correct. I do not think that's a baseline. That's the congressionally mandated baseline. It is whether there is, in fact, a dilution of the effectiveness and the ability of minorities to participate fully in the electoral process and to elect candidates of their choice. That is exactly what this Court said in White Against Register. Mr. <coughs> Uh, it wasn't uh, white, white against register was a uh, based on the equal protection clause, wasn't it? That's correct. So it was a constitutional law case. That is correct. Uh, and uh, what happened to white against register in Bolden? Do you think? What happened? What happened to it? In, in the Bolden case. In the Bolden case, it eventually went back after this court's decision in Bolden. What happened? What happened to? The uh, white against register, if anything. Oh, they broke up the districts. Well, uh, they, they were at large districts. Do you think they you, broke do you them think up? The, do you think the vote dilution part of white against register survived Bolden as a constitutional matter? Oh, as a constitutional matter, perhaps it did not. Well, because, be, uh, but but the point is, Congress said this is the standard in section two. Well, I know, but what what and what was the Congress's authority to pass? Uh, Section 2, the amendment to Section 2. The 14th and 15th Amendments. The, uh, you, you think it was the 15th? Could it be the 14th? Or what? Be, I think it could be both. Uh, even, be both. <laughs> even though, uh, even though uh, uh, Bolden said uh, there was no such uh, uh, equal protection requirement in the 14th Amendment. Bolden said exactly that, oh, but, that uh, there's but no... You, in, that, that but you, you, uh, Congress has the authority to enforce the 14th Amendment in a way that the court said wasn't required. Is right. Correct. Mm -hmm. It can go farther. Now, the, 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 the Congress, at least as embodied in the Senate report, which this court has described as authoritative, believed that, with all respect... The court in City of Mobile erred.
But notwithstanding that, it respected that judgment because this Court is the final authoritative voice on the meaning of the Constitution. But what it did say is we have power to, in fact, embody that test which not only is correct and right in our view, but also has shown to be workable. It works. It does not, in fact, create an untriable amorphous standard. Does it incorporate, in your view, our uh, holding in Thornburg and Gingles? Does what incorporate? Section The two? totality of circumstances test that you advocate as the correct standard under the section that's here involved. I think Thornburg against Jingles sets forth this Court's reading of what the Senate report factors pointed to. We are not here today quarreling with Thornburg against Jingles. Do you think but it should be applied to the election of judges? I think that the standard set forth in Section 2, and is, as interpreted in, by this Court, should be applied to the election of judges. But Gingles... But now I asked about Thornburg and Gingles. Should that rationale be applied uh, across the board in interpreting whether or not a judge or petitioners uh, contesting the allocation of judgeships have made out a violation under Section 2? Do you well, think so, and Gingles? Well, I think something very important is involved in the election of judges. And this is the state interest in its structure of the judiciary. In this case, there is no powerful state interest with respect to at-large elections. That is to say, the Louisiana Supreme Court is elected with the exception of the first judicial district from single-member districts. But the Senate report, and Thornburg against Jingles noted this, did look to the Fifth Circuit's seminal decision in Zimmer against McKeithen, and there, particularly at page 1305 of that opinion, the Fifth Circuit looked to the state interest and the powerful, compelling nature of the state interest in that particular structure. We do believe that that is a consideration, a factor to be weighed in the totality of the circumstances as we have sought to elaborate in our amicus brief in the LULAC case. So it, that's just, it, it isn't clear to me how you think Gingles would apply in the absence of a one-person, one-vote requirement. That was the underpinning of the majority holding in that case. It may not apply in full measure. What I think Thornburg against Jingles was seeking to do was to take the 1982 amendments as elaborated by what the Jingles court viewed as authoritative, the Senate report, and to analyze that report and then to say how is a case made out in the legislative, that of course was a legislative contest or a legislative districting issue and not a judicial structuring issue. And I, we do think, for the very reasons that Judge Higginbotham set forth in his concurring opinion in LULAC, that different kinds of considerations are at play and should be considered. And Thornburg had no occasion to consider those. General Starr, do you think that the uh Section 2B requirements extend to merit selection retention elections as well? That issue is not before us, but I think it does. What we believe is that the statute applies, period, to any election. Well, how about uh, election on referendum measures? We believe it applies. Despite the use of the word representatives. Yes. It's a little hard to argue that a referendum is a representative. Yes, it is. But, but I would suggest that, the, very briefly, that the function of 2B is to tell us what the 2A standard is all about. 2A is the critical 
prohibition in Section 2. And Section 2 is the heart of this statute, and Section 2 speaks very broadly. No voting qualification, no prerequisite to voting, no standard practice or procedure. And then we look again to 14C1 to see what the breadth of that is, and it's universal. In fact, 14C1 talks about votes for non-candidates. We believe that this is uniformly, universally applicable to all elections. Then the way that the standard is to be applied is through a totality of the circumstances analysis. That is what Section 2B tells us. But the function of 2B is not, in fact, to identify the offices that are covered. And when Congress wants to do that, it full knows well how to do it, as illustrated by Section 11 of the statute, which has an enumeration of specific offices to which that particular provision or prohibition applies. I'd like to reserve, if I may, the balance of my time. Very well, General Starr. Uh, Ms. Carlin, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I want to turn first to the question of baselines that's been uh, raised by Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Scalia and give you three ways in which that baseline question can be answered in judicial elections, even assuming that one person, one vote doesn't apply. The first one is concrete from this case. We know already that the state of Louisiana is willing to have single-member districts ranging in size from 410,000 to over 800,000 justices. That's part of the stipulation with regard to the existing single-member districts. Therefore, if plaintiffs can show that using the state's own criteria for what sorts of populations should be in districts, you can nonetheless draw a majority black district, that would satisfy the first prong of jingles. We did that in this case. The second way of doing that... Excuse me, but that that assumes that that the state is taking nothing into account except numbers, and it it presumably is also taking into account geography, uh, the the nature of the political units uh, into which these districts are drawn. You're you're imposing upon the state a, a, a numerical criterion as the sole criterion. No, that's not the sole criterion, of course, Justice Scalia. It's just the one you're willing to judge them on. You're saying they use four hundred to 800,000 for the other justices. Why can't they use it for this one? Well, Their answer might be, well, we have different geographic regions. And well, their answer different. might be, Your Honor, that they don't think that representing black people on the state, of, state Supreme Court is as important as representing Cajuns, which is one of the reasons they have the districts they have now. That may well be, but that's you can make that argument about any political arrangement that they make. That, that There may be a, a nefarious motive, but... Well, right. And if there were a nefarious motive for this statute, it would clearly fall under the 14th Amendment, regardless of one person, one vote's applicability. You can't discriminate against black voters simply because they're not that numerous or because one person, one vote doesn't apply. Given that, if you ask how do we determine whether there's an alternative structure, and after all, that's what Jingle's first factor asks. Is there an alternative to the existing one person, the existing multi-member districting scheme? in which black citizens or Latinos would have the potential to elect the candidate of their choice. That's what the Court says on pages 49 through 50 of its opinion. And I think also that that's the burden of the example at the beginning of Justice O'Connor's concurrence in the judgment. Given that, that's one way of measuring. The second way of measuring is to say, all right, the state doesn't have to have equipopulist districting, but let's use that as an illustrative tool. That was done in this case as well. If the state of Louisiana were to have seven districts with absolutely equal populations in them, it would still be possible to draw a majority black district centered on Orleans Parish and contiguous parts of Jefferson Parish, which are majority black. That was proved at trial by the United States as plaintiff intervener. If, if we if we had that kind of a scheme, we would at least, or the court that has to draw, that had to draw the district or find the violation, would at least have 
on the numerical issue a principled basis for saying, yes, there can be uh, a district of appropriate size. If we don't have some kind of, of one-person, one-vote scheme, what is the principal basis upon which we can weigh that particular factor? Well, to begin with, in this case, as I already um, alluded to, the districting size that the state already has, that's a principled basis. If the state of Louisiana What, is what if the state is, is not uh, quite so cooperative? Uh, and, and what if the figures aren't quite that neat? Is, is 10 to 1 uh, okay? Uh, one district uh, has, a, has a ratio of... Uh, of, uh, let's say, um, 900 to, to uh, one judge, and the other would have a ratio of 100 to one judge. Where do we draw those lines? Well, Justice Souter, in this case, because it's a state Supreme Court, I would suggest that if the state of Louisiana had one district with 3 million people in it and another district with 12 people in it, that would violate the Equal Protection Clause because it would be arbitrary, regardless of whether one person, one vote applied. That's what this Court held in Salyer against Tulare Lake Basin Water Storage District. It held that even when one person, one vote principles don't apply, the state still has to comport with the Equal Protection Clause principles. And I think that those principles allow you to use as an illustrative Example, because that's all that the first prong of Jingles asked is, is there an alternative to the present system which would afford minorities an equal opportunity to participate and to elect the candidates of their choice? If you can show that, that establishes that first prong of Jingles. It doesn't require the state to adopt that as the remedy at all. Indeed, one thing that may be of interest to the court is that the districts upon which this court rested in Jingles in finding delusion were not the districts that were ultimately adopted at the remedial phase because the state had the right to come back with another set of districts, and as long as those districts fully remedied the violation, the state is free to do what it wants. Um, the second, the third point I wanted to make about that is that in light of um, the decision by this court in Wells against Edwards, that's a summary affirmance. I think that the dissent had the better of the argument there, but you needn't go that far in order to find uh, that there was a, a mechanism for establishing dilution in this case. Uh, the second point I wanted to address is the role of Section 2B, because I think that goes to Justice O'Connor's question about whether referenda are covered. Section 14C1, the definitional provision of the Act, says that the word vote includes any election at which propositions are voted on, as well as candidates. Now, Section 2 of the Act is the only nationwide prohibition on discrimination, and my answer would be that Section 2 in Part A defines what is prohibited, and Part B is just one illustration of how to go about proving that, and I'd like to give a concrete example of how you might challenge a referendum. Suppose, for example, in a county that's majority black, but in which blacks are segregated in per certain parts of the county, you have to get a certain number of signatures to get an initiative on a ballot from each precinct in the county. And there's racial polarization, and black people can't get any signatures in a white area. You might be able to challenge that referenda provision for signatures and petitions under the results clause because it dilutes the strength there of a black majority. So it's not just election of representatives that's covered by the Act. Even if this Court were to hold that the word representatives doesn't include judges, it would still have to grapple with 2A, which says no voting rights standard practice or procedure, and that includes ones in which no candidate is chosen at all. Uh, finally, with regard to the question of merit selection, Yes, the Voting Rights Act would apply to merit selections as well because, for example, if the state set up its district so that no matter what blacks did, whether they voted to retain a judge or to throw him out, they were always outvoted in that retention election by a white block vote, then the structure of the districts could be challenged itself. Um, lastly, I wanted to turn... So would you, 
you would take the position that in a state that, for instance, had five uh, Supreme Court justices, and they were all elected statewide, that uh, a 2B claim could be made out and the state could be forced to set up a separate district for the election. No, Justice O'Connor. A Section 2 claim could be made out. The state would retain the ability to come up with a number of other ways of electing that five-justice court. They could continue to elect them at large by, for example, using cumulative voting. Uh, what that would allow uh, any group that was greater than 15 percent of the population, because one over six is the threshold of exclusion there, and we explain How is that different from proportional representation? It's not proportional representation for two reasons, Justice Kennedy. The first is that it says nothing about who actually serves on the court. We don't claim in our case, and I don't think any petitioners have claimed, that it's a right to have a black person sitting on the bench. Well, what is, well, what is the object of your cumulative voting exercise? To give black citizens in Louisiana a say on who sits on the Supreme Court. And how do you measure that say? Do you measure it by their success in electing candidates? Candidates of their choice. Now, this Court has made clear it's not necessarily... Candidates of their choice. And isn't that proportional representation? No, it's not proportional representation. You define proportional representation as just being a, a, a racial calculus? That's what the Senate sought to avoid, is the idea that you had to have a token black person on every body in order to, um, in order to satisfy the Voting Rights Act. No, but I, th I think the suggestion here is that members of the black community want to be able to identify a candidate as is theirs. I, I thought that was the gravamen of your cumulative voting argument. It is, but it's not proportional representation, Justice Kennedy. It's a right to participate in the system equally with all other voters. What Louisiana does today is it gives 410 Well, but if you have an identifiable candidate, regardless of the race of that candidate, representing a racial group, uh, I think that's proportional representation, or, we're, or otherwise it's just a quibble. Well, I, I don't think it's just a quibble. I think, you know, this Court recognized in Jingles that there is a certain tension between measuring dilution and, ta and forbidding a claim of proportional representation. The way that plaintiffs get around that is we're not claiming a right to proportional representation. We're claiming that the present system dilutes our ability to participate equally because due to racial block voting, due to a history of discrimination, due to racial appeals and campaigns and the like, black citizens in Louisiana are not able to participate in this, to the same degree that white citizens are able to participate in selecting a Supreme Court that rules all of them. And that's what the gravamen of the complaint is. It's not a complaint about proportional representation. And you're, and you're telling me that it's irrelevant, the race of the members who serve on the Supreme Court of the state of Louisiana in this case? May I have leave to answer the question? You may answer the question, Ms. Carlin, yes. I'm not telling you it's irrelevant. I think it has tremendous symbolic importance and importance in respect for the law. But if the black citizens of Orleans Parish chose to elect a white person to the Supreme Court, they would be satisfied and we would be satisfied that the law has, has worked just as when they elected a white person from the district that was set up after Major Against Treen. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Carlin. Mr. Pugh, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. At the outset, I would like to bring something in focus as to what is before you as distinguished from what isn't before you. We've talked in the last few minutes about constitutional claims. There are no constitutional claims here today. Those were posed below in the District Court and they were abandoned in the district court. Nothing on appeal. 
There's no nefarious motion or idea or motive before you today. The constitutional claims are not here. What is here is that 41 states elect judges. And it's about 41 states that ultimately this decision must consider. There's been a suggestion about a Cajun justice. I don't know him. We do have seven justices. Of the seven justices, two are, in fact, elected from the metropolitan area of Orleans. They have been so elected since 1879. Every constitution in Louisiana since 1879 is provided for this same electoral arrangement. Mr. Pew, is there yes. some accepted explanation for why some of the seats on the Supreme Court are geographically, uh, by geographic regions, and uh, others are at large? Uh, yes, in this instance, uh, back in the earlier days, the 1879 period, that was the focal point of the state in Orleans. And it was believed by the people who confected the Constitution at that time that it would be, it would be appropriate to have two justices from that specific area, that metropolitan area. But bringing it to date, if I may, in the 1974 Constitutional, the 73 Constitutional Convention, which resulted in the election by the people of a new Constitution in 1974, every time the issue arose concerning whether or not there should be seven districts, it was defeated. It was defeated with the black votes voting primarily against such a concept. As a matter of fact, on the, the proposal was to move from five geographic districts to have all seven by geographic districts. Yes, so the proposal proposal was to have seven districts, as distinguished from uh, having six districts six. and then a combination on the seventh. Now, in that connection, it was posed at the convention: Why shouldn't? One man, one vote be applicable. Why shouldn't we have seven districts? Why shouldn't we provide in the seven districts that they should be equal in population? Black from Orleans don't want that system. The final vote, it was voted with one black voting against it, and that person was from East Baton Rouge Parish. But more up to date, we've recently had that same issue posed to the people across the board of Louisiana. Should we, in effect, have seven justices on the Louisiana Supreme Court, each elected from a different district? What happened to it across the board? Orleans voted 24% in favor of it, bearing in mind they had 53% of the population at that time were black, 53.5 in fact. 24% voted for the proposition, 76 voted against the proposition, percentage. Let's look at it in the full parish area. In the full parish area, it was 24% against, 24% uh, for, 76% against. Let's look across the state. It was 26% for and 74% against. What, uh, 
What have these numbers got to do with the legal issue here? Well, I was trying to illustrate for the benefit of the court that, as suggested by the chief, why the districts and trying to explain that that's what the people want. I will, however, uh, considering my time, like to move on to the rest of the argument. Obviously, we have a plain meaning question here. Now, representatives was used, as we all know, as being a suggestion of a word rather than legislators. No question about it. Senator Dole, who drew the so-called compromise amendment, said, if we want to use the results test from white, let's use the language from white. And that's what occurred. They didn't use the word candidate, which would have embraced the judiciary. They didn't talk about public officials, which would have embraced the judiciary. Instead, they used one word, representative. Obviously, candidate would have been more than representative. Candidate appears four times within the statute itself. And for reasons only they know, they chose not to use that word. Now, I'd like to move, if I may, to the question of, well, obviously, I want to make the point that if anybody knows what a representative is, surely Congress would know what a representative was. Now, for 18 years preceding this act, or the amendment to this act, there were 15 cases, admittedly in the one-man, one-vote area of the law, holding that judges were not representative. Not one of those cases is indicating that I could see in any of the reports, any of the suggestions, any of the arguments, why would Congress, a body who somebody quoted as being of lawyers, why would Congress ignore the entire one-third structure of all 50 states except for the reason that it did not want to include judges as being representatives. Mr. Pugh, yes, sir. Is, it, is it your position that judges are not covered by, by 2B, but are covered by 2A? Yes, sir, that is my position, and I'll tell you the reason it's my position. First of all, we must talk about, even though this court in Jingles did suggest in fact, it said that the results test actually took the place of the intent state. They said it better than I'm saying it, but in effect, they said intent's out the window, result comes in. Now, it was mentioned a minute ago about <coughs> referendums. That's not the only thing. You've got annexations, de-annexations, you've got polling places, you've got a litany of issues that must fall somewhere. Obviously, I believe everybody would concede that issues are not representatives. They must fall somewhere. They obviously have got to fall then under 2A. Which requires an intent. That's right, John. It requires intent. Mm -hmm. And I say the intent standard is still there. I believe the intent standard is applicable to the judiciary. Now, if one wants to read it out of 2A, it's still in the 15th. You can plead either or both. And incidentally, despite the fact that this court had indicated that intent was out of the window, I would suggest to you that the authoritative, everybody agrees that what the Senate report said is authoritative, 
in one, two, three, four, five, six places in the Senate report, it said you could use the intent standard or you could use the result standard under Section 2. So there's no doubt, at least, I believe, intent can still be used under Section 2. Because I mean, it makes sense, you say. I mean, I, I agree it makes sense, but how do you get there from the language? I mean, it says, it says uh, what it says is that no, no voting qualification shall be imposed in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment as provided in subsection B. That's the answer, as provided in subsection B, which But subsection B provides that it doesn't, it doesn't cover anything except representatives. That's absolutely correct, John. So that leaves subsection A covering nothing except representatives. Then issues are out. suddenly jump off there, right? No, issues are out then. Now, what difference in the final analysis make if judges are not under the intent standard as I contend under 2A? Suppose they're not there. What difference does it make? You can certainly still cover them under the 15th Amendment, so the result is still the same. You end up with an intent standard. A state can't say that we're going to, I believe in the words of one of you in one of the cases, that we can't make one out of every ten with Justice White. You can't create a system of one out of every ten or try to classify somewhere. You still have the 15th Amendment to contend with. And that's what I say. If it's not under 2A, it can't, in my opinion, at least it can't be under 2B. No way under any stretch of imagination do I believe that a representative can include the judiciary. If I'm correct on that, and I believe I am, then the issue becomes, are they out completely? Congress says they're not out. Congress says you can use an intent standard. Now, where are they going to get it from? I don't know. But that's what they said. Again, I reiterate. Mr. Pugh, can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. In White Against Register, the Court's opinion uses the term legislators. Yes, sir. Congress substituted the word representatives. Is the word representatives, in your view, somewhat broader than the term legislators? Yes, it is. What, what Why is they switch from legislators to representatives, I don't know, and I, I doubt serious if anybody knows except perhaps them. What, what does it include in addition to legislators? I think it includes the executives. Include all the executives, any elected executive officer. It would be someone, well, I think it's in there for two reasons. One, an executive can be a school board member, and I think there's a great deal of concern about school boards and their operations insofar as Congress is concerned. And I think what they were trying to do is not get in the trap of saying legislators and somebody throwing on an executive hat said, it ain't me. What they wanted to do with the school boards is fully cover them, whether we're executives or legislators. I can't tell you that that's anywhere in it, because it's not. All I believe is that representatives is broader than legislators. I believe it's much narrower, meanwhile, than is the word candidate, which they could have used. Now, the problem, of course, is that, as Justice O'Connor said, the touchstone, that's telephones, the actual method by which you make the determination on the jingles starts off, first threshold is nothing more and or less than a one-man, one-vote stand. It's got to be. You've got to create a district. To create a district that's compact, you've got to measure some undiluted district. 
So you can't get to the first test unless you get by one man, one vote. You can't get by one man, one vote unless this court is prepared to do something about Wells, which incidentally was a Louisiana Supreme Court case. That was the case when Kemp was made at that time. You, you suggest that they that the uh, Congress didn't use legislator uh, and used representative in order to uh, cover the executive branch. I know of no other reason it could possibly be than that. What? Uh, in, let's just take Louisiana for example. Yes, uh, uh, let's say that Section Two uh, A could apply to the executive branch in Louisiana. Yes. Sir. Give me an example of an office to which it would apply that isn't a one-person office, an indivisible office. Yeah, school board. School school boards. Yes, sir. And I think that's really what. Is that about? Is that about it? Well, that's one of them. That's one that comes to mind. Uh, Obviously, uh, if you have just an individual that falls in the executive classification, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a a parish commission. And you think, uh, and school boards would qualify as. Representatives? Yes, sir. I would, because I think they had that dual function. I and they, um, school boards uh, are sometimes, ele- they are mostly elected at large, aren't they, or not? Uh, yes, they are primarily mm-hmm. elected at large. Mm-hmm. But they certainly have more than an executive function. They certainly have more than a legislative function. That they wear both hats, as does, as I indicated, a parish commission. Well, I guess it's... <laughs> The court has been uh, reasonably clear that uh, Section 2A applies to judges, Mr. Pugh. Section 2. 2A. I believe it applies to judges. The Senate indicates that you can still use an intense standard. I don't know of anywhere else to put it than 2A because you sure can't put it in 2 Well, of course, 2A itself was amended, as Justice Scalia noted in his question to you, to include the word results and to refer specifically to 2B. It triggers down to 2B. 2B is where the test appears. The test to be applied is in 2B. That's admitted by the Justice Department, at least in the brief that they filed in the Clark case, which you're about to hear around 1 o'clock. They have admitted that the results test is 2B. Well, if 2A applies and it refers in 2A to the word results and it incorporates whatever the standard is in 2B, uh, you have to put a tremendous amount of freight on the word representatives to say somehow uh, you can't look at the totality of the circumstances when it comes to judicial elections. Well, I put no more freight on it than what Congress apparently did because that's all they said. They said, of course, as provided in subsection B of this section, which is the last provision in 2A and was not a provision, of course, that came up from the House. The House's provision was entirely different than what we currently have with Section 2A and 2B. Mr. Pugh, what about uh, what, what 2B says is that it, its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate, not just to elect representatives of their choice, but 
to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. That's a conjunction. Um, it is indeed. Now, yeah, might, uh, might, might judges... I'm not, be, I'm not being <laughs> playful, or I shouldn't be in any event. Might, I just say that is a conjunction. Right. Might, might judges be covered by the first and, and not by the second? Not when the conjunctions are, young. Yeah. Well, they're entitled to both. Well, they're not representative. They're entitled to both. If they're denied of either one, there's a violation. Well, let's put them under the intent standard then, rather than the results standard, because the results standard says specifically that it's related to representative of their choice. It doesn't say judges of their choice. It doesn't say issues of their choice. It says representatives of their choice. What, what does participate in the political process in 2B mean, do you think? To vote. It's clear to elect representatives of their choice does does get you into the the dilution issue. Yes, sir. What about participating in the political process? Does that? That's to vote. To vote. To vote and elect representatives of your choice. I still think with the conjunction it, it's talking about both things. It's talking about voting for and elect representatives of your choice. Do the justices in Louisiana represent anybody? Do they represent anybody? Yeah. Well, not, not in the sense that the word representation is used here. No, sir. Oh, you mean represent means something one place and something else another place and something else a third place? Well, I can only suggest... Well, don't use the common phrase. If, a, if the people in this county vote for a judge, doesn't that judge feel that he represents them? He may well feel... That he well, doesn't he in fact represent them? He's elected by those people to serve on the court on their behalf. And if, don't if you that, think that requires one person, one vote? The result of which is? Well, I, I can only. Well, I noticed you say one man, one vote. I guess I you apologize. Don't, I certainly you don't agree with the one. I got a, I bet I got a dozen notes there that says. For goodness sake, if you don't do anything else, you use the word person instead. instead of, and I'm sorry, I, I can't read very well, but they're over here. I, I, got, I got that message put to me. Unfortunately, it didn't stay with me. I'd like to, I'd like to address another issue, if I may. And that's the issue of not only are we dealing with plain meaning, one of the definitions of representatives, of course, being an agent, and obviously an executive and a legislator, or the agent of the electorate for the purpose of carrying out their wishes. Sometimes they don't always do it, but they're supposed to do it in any event. If they don't do it, they're not going to get reelected. Now, another important factor, I think, that plays on this case is the question of this tremendous movement, 41 states that elect judges, and not one word said about judges in all of this, with the single exception of what was used as judicial districts, and we believe we've resolved that at least by reflecting that more than judges, other than judges, get elected from judicial districts. It is true that in some of the preparation of the materials that were submitted uh, to Congress, 
had the success of blacks in judicial races and that thing. But there's no mention when it comes to the concrete evidence of Senate reports about that. If there was to be a total change for the first time in the history of this country to provide that the third branch of of, of government was to be thrust into this voting-rised quagmire, it's pretty obvious that somebody would have said something. Well, Mr. Pugh, yes, Your Honor. you don't agree then that before the uh, amendments in 1982, judges were covered by the Act? Yes, sir, they were because it was intent. And again, I think that the intent standard of the original Section 2 covered judges. But it so so ju- judges were covered under the, the applicable standard of the Act before the 1982 amendments? Yes, sir. Well, then, then it wasn't such a dramatic change, uh, as you say, to, to, to say that they would continue to be covered uh, after the 1982 amendments. Well, I think it's a dramatic change in that they are definitively covered for the purpose of this brand-new results test. But so is everybody else brand-new covered for the purpose of that results test. Representatives are young, and no doubt about that. That's what Congress said. My suggestion is that if they intended... Judges to be covered, there's other language that could and should have been used, candidate being one of them. But obviously, uh, when you, when this court has said that, when this court has said as it did in the Jingles case, that insofar as intense concern, that is the test of Section 2. Well, it would be silly if I would argue when this court says, that what section, the original Section 2 meant was an intent test, when I know there's an intent test in the 15th Amendment to try to stand in and argue that there are two different kinds of intent tests, one statutorily, which creates a different set of categories, and one constitutional, constitutionally facts that would create another standard. So uh, certainly I'll have to acknowledge that intent was under the original Section 2, and for that reason. <coughs> The one person, one vote is where the dramatic change would occur. You cannot follow the Thornburg v. Jingles case unless you apply a one person, one vote standard. You can't get there without it. And right now, judges have been held by this court twice and by 13 other courts uh, as not being under the one man, one vote, and for a good reason. You think if uh, Bolden had never been decided and White against Register uh, <coughs> was uh, still uh, hale and hearty, uh, do you think that uh, do you think that this uh, that this at-large election in, in Orleans uh, Parish uh, could have been attacked under the standard uh, written about in White Against Register? I don't think so. Sir? Apparently, I should have said yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think so, too. (laughs) But, uh, and don't you think think that Congress, don't you think that Congress intended to, uh, 
to uh, have that test applied as a statutory matter in Section 2? 2 or 2B. Yeah. Section 2B? Oh, yeah. I do not. I think they would have said so if they intended to. Mm-hmm. I think it was still gets back to, we've got the plain meaning problem. We've got the, the changes of now shoving judges over to one person, one vote level. I just, large and small of it, you're still back to the word representatives. And what does it mean? Well, you still have to get over the notion. You have to, you have to convince us that judges uh, aren't covered by the word representative. Well, I could drag out some dictionaries. Well. I, I don't find it. I, don't, I do find uh, cases holding that they're not representatives. I find 15 cases mm-hmm. that hold they're not representatives. I find two cases in this court that indicate that. So if they are, they brand new are and they are today. They ain't been in the past, you know. Uh, appears to me they haven't been mm-hmm. in the past. I just I just don't believe, as Judge King said when I made the same statement in the Fifth Circuit, I just don't believe that you can live with the judiciary not being a one person one vote standard, and at the same time tie into Thornhill versus Jingles. She said it's not an imperfect, this is an imperfect world. Six of those judges in the Fifth Circuit thought that they were covered. Yes, they did, John. Uh, Seven didn't, I guess. That's right, John. I'd call that close. Fortunately, I had seven, John. It's awful close, and I can understand, uh, I believe. All those six didn't read the dictionaries. Well, not very well. And I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure it was six, but I won't quarrel with the number. I yes, think it was right. closer than that. As the court well knows, one of the judges who heard the en banc uh, had put in his papers and they'd been accepted, and he didn't vote. Yes. The remain, I think it's one in three voted with Higginbottom. That would have been Polites, that would have been King, and that would have been Davis. Yes. And then, of course, we had the, the chief who concurred. Yes. And incidentally, it's kind of a little bit where I got some of these issue ideas from as I read his uh, concurrent opinion. Yes. Of course, uh, he, he emphatically said in his opinion that there's no way, or at least in his belief, there's no way that you consider judges as representative. Yes. I guess the, the blindfold lady with a sword and with a, with a scale, that's the consistent constituency of the judiciary, mm-hmm. no more and no less. I just don't believe a judge can can put on partial robes, and I think we've got to consider the fact that the role of a judge is much different than a role occupied or function occupied by either a legislator. Well, of course, or the state a, a state uh, can. Uh can elect their judges, I suppose, and empower the uh, electorate to throw the judge out if they don't like the way he decides cases. And that's exactly what's going to happen, Your Honor. If it, well, uh, that's, if exactly it, what, that's exactly what is, happens in Louisiana and Texas, isn't it? I don't believe that. The electorate doesn't like what, what the, how the judge operates, they throw him out. Well, that's what the law provides, but I guarantee you one thing, not too many of them uh, shed the robes. As a matter of fact, uh, we have almost a uh, 90% re-election rate. What about that 10%? Well, 
uh, they may have been doing what I would hope would never occur, that is to, to show favoritism to a certain group or, or to show stupidity mm-hmm. in the decisions when they render them. Of course there's a means for getting rid of them. And that means is a is a ballot box next time. And you don't think that you don't think that even comes close to suggesting that they're representative. No, Your Honor, I don't. Mm-hmm. I think there are people who must face the public mm-hmm. on a periodic basis because Louisiana, unlike New Jersey and some of the states where the judges are appointed for life, we don't have that. We have them. Thank you, Mr. Pugh. I think you've answered. Yes, I have, and I apologize, Your Honor. General Starr, you have three minutes remaining for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Very briefly, uh, judges were clearly covered by Section 2 prior to 1982. There is no indication. No. Yes. But it could not be clearer that they were. This is, in fact, a direct meaning, plain, natural meaning case, when we look at the definition. When Congress revisited this statute in 1982, it did not modify the definitional provisions of 14C1. To Judge Gee and his colleagues, that was irrelevant because it was buried deep in the statute. That's where we look to where the statute was covered, what it was all about. When we then look to the use of representatives, That word found its way into the statute, deep into the untidy legislative process introduced by Senator Dole in the compromise. When the battle was not over coverage, what offices are going to be covered? That issue was at rest in 1965 and has remained at rest. What was at issue is is intent required by this statute or does it suffice to prove results and effects? Not a word in the legislative history about dropping judges suddenly. Whoops, they're gone. They were covered, but suddenly they're gone by virtue of the Dole Compromise. The final point that I would like to make is in response to Justice O'Connor's questions about the State Supreme Court. We do, in fact, believe that a state may have a very powerful, indeed compelling interest in its structure of government, especially at a state Supreme Court level, and having each of those justices responsible to, if it chooses to elect them, and accountable to the entirety of the electorate, and in our reading of the Senate report, in our reading of Zimmer against McKeithen, that interest can, in fact, and should, be taken into account in the totality of the circumstances. Well, what what does that mean to say it may be taken into account in the totality of the circumstances? Does that mean that a, a particular district court in Louisiana could say Louisiana can go ahead the way it is, and a particular district court in Mississippi could say, no, Mississippi can't go ahead the way it is, and each one would be ultimately affirmed? Perhaps not, because we would well, have perhaps to... Perhaps not, but perhaps but, yes. But, but perhaps yes, because under, Mr. Chief Justice, the totality of the circumstances, I think Congress contemplated exactly that. It looked to what happened in White against Register, and it approved of what it saw there. Thank, Thank you, you, General Starr. The case is submitted.